Hello, welcome back. Um, you have just been listening to the first eight albums um, of Yoda Tango, uh, and you have been taken through them by Ben Zimmer. Ben is here still. Ben, hello. Hello. And, uh, hello to all the listeners out there. <laughs> we still got Jeffrey. He hasn't run away yet. Hey. Uh, I am Jesse. Yo. And Nick. Uh, Nick might disappear occasionally because his internet's apparently bad, but at the moment we've got him. Hey, Nick. Hello. And how many times did you see Yoda Tango? <laughs> I've seen Yola Tango once in 2018. They came to Budapest. I saw them on a boat, and it was a great gig. Um, I've seen them once as well, um, randomly at all tomorrow's parties. Uh, and Ben, you, you, we forgot to ask you how many times you've seen um, I would say in the same uh, general number as Jeffrey said, 20-ish in the 20s, I would say, because I saw them like Jeffrey for the first time in 1996. But then I was, uh, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't really get to... Uh, start going to lots of their shows until uh, about 2004. I moved to uh, Jersey City, where I live now, which is right next door to Hoboken. Uh, so I was able to see lots of Maxwell shows, lots of Hanukkah shows, basically at least once a year or so, um, um, up through their most recent Hanukkah shows at the end of 2019. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, okay, so in a second, we're going to start with Ride the Tiger, the, the, the first full proper studio LP. Um I'm going to start by saying, like some people are now holding, everyone's going to be, everyone's holding up their vinyl, <laughs> uh, which is awesome to see. I'm glad it's vinyl. Um, I'm going to start this by saying I didn't really know Yoda um, up until we decided to do this pod when Ben said this was one he wanted to do. I had seen them once. Oh, there is a CD. <laughs> Jeffrey also has a CD. Um, I, I'd seen them once at, at a festival. Um, I had heard a couple of things here and there, but and I knew who they were, but for some reason they just, I think it, as they got more and more albums, it became something I was quite frightened trying to tackle. Um, and while they were becoming legendary or part of American uh, music history, uh, in the UK, it was there was barely a whisper. Um, all I really knew about them was the Onion headline, uh, Disaster at Yola Tengo's 32 Records store clerks, something like that, presumed dead. Is that right, Ben? Uh, yeah, that's right. I actually was just uh, rereading that classic. The headline is 37 Record Store Clerks Fear Dead in Yola Tengo Concert Disaster from 2002. And it's got so many just classic lines in it. Uh, you know, eyewitnesses reporting. It's just a twisted mass of black frame glasses and ironic <laughs> Girl Scouts t-shirts in there. <laughs> so I think as we've just established, established they are, they're a band that music fans sometimes love and get obsessed by. Um, and they are almost like the trump card in a, well, I like this band. We're going to get started with Ride the Tiger. Um, first time I listened to a week ago, and it was a nice, easy start. I mean, I did not know what I was going to expect. And this was, it was a nice, simple bit of college rock, a little bit of Dinosaur Jr. in there, some nice, nice melodies jangled along in a really nice way. Bit of Velvet Underground. Um, ben, I mean, did you start with Ride the Tiger when you first got into them, or did you come back to? It? Oh, I, I came back to it much later. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really pick up um, Yola Tango until Fake Book, I think, was the first one I listened to. Um, so uh, I went back to those earlier albums once I once I really got into their catalog. For a while, it was kind of hard to get those um, early albums, and uh, that's still an issue a bit, just because you know. Once they were on Matador, everything was straightened out. Those those albums are easy to get. But I know that uh, these first few albums that we're going to be talking about may be difficult for people outside of North America to listen to because um, their their first three 
uh, on Spotify, at least only are streaming in North America. So um, there are selections that uh, Europeans and others will be able to listen to from their compilations that are on Spotify. But um, so so even now, it's a little it's a little tricky to uh, to get hold of it, at least if you're um, in other parts of the world. But um, uh, yeah, because I will say that yeah. I found the first three on Tidal. I got a Tidal subscription. Oh, that's good um, to know. And they they were on there. Um, I'm, this seems to be the sort of thing. Sometimes they're on Deezer in Spain, and sometimes they're on Spotify in the UK, uh, etc. Um, Jesse, you've seen Yoda Tenga five thousand three hundred and sixty-five <laughs> times. Um, <laughs> did you start at Ride the Tiger? What do you think? Oh God, heavens no! I I'm not really a fan of this record. <laughs> uh, in the scheme of Yoda Tenga records. Um... I mean, you know, I like it's re- it's it's really really fascinating and and fantastic. I fell in love with the Altango much much later, uh, it, around the time I guess sometime after I can hear the heart beating is one, um, and then nothing turned itself inside out. Kind of those those records, and like all bands that I love, I was like, okay, I'm gonna go back to the first album, see where these guys started, and see, and it was just like how is this possibly the same band that I just yeah. have obsessed over for months and months and months? It doesn't sound to my ears. It's it's even now going back to it. I mean, I, I recognize that it's Yola Tango now and now I can, I totally hear it, but it's still, there's still something very alien um, sounding about it to me. I don't, I don't often send people to this record when they're getting into the band, um, but there's songs on it that I love that still, you know, turn up in Yola Tango shows. The Cone of Silence is still, still something they play. That's, uh, and the evil that men do kind of became uh, is sort of a staple of the first half of the career. I'm also a Yola Tango uh, tape collector. So I guess I think about things in terms of um, periods like that as well. But uh, it, yeah, it feels like, uh, you know, it feels like the first album on a box set to me, almost like demos or, or kind of these early ideas that aren't totally, you know, their voice isn't totally there yet. So I, I, I kind of think of it as fascinating, but it's, it fe- sometimes feels, you know, like a footnote. Um, you know, Jeffrey's Jeffrey, got two copies, so yeah, he, Jeffrey, <laughs> Jeffrey has shown us shown us two copies of this. Um, so if it's so much different than the, the latest stuff, Jeffrey, where does this fit for you? Um, well, I just wanted to uh, I wanted to ask Jesse when you say that you're into Yola Tango from a tape angle, you mean live tape specifically? Yeah, yeah. Because I just wanted to, that, wanted the audience to hear that to be aware of that because that might not be. See, I'm when you say that I'm. Um, we, well, a name that we have not mentioned yet that will probably get mentioned in this context is the Grateful Dead, because the Grateful Dead <laughs> is a band, the only band that I've seen more times than Yola Tango, but, but the number of times I've seen Yola Tango is starting to creep up on the amount of times that I saw the Grateful Dead during their lifetime, um, which actually, ironically, because Jerry Garcia died in 1995, and I started seeing Yola Tango shows in 1996. So it's sort of like they stepped in and took the place of me going to see Grateful Dead shows. Although I never traveled the country following Yola Tango around the way I did with the Grateful Dead. But when you say getting more into like the tapes, I immediately understand what you mean as a Grateful Dead fan, because that's the terminology that people use if they're really into live recordings of the Grateful Dead. That was always a thing. You would trade these cassettes and tapes. But for people listening in Europe and England and outside of the United States, where the Grateful Dead and tape culture, Grateful Dead live concert tape culture is not known, I think we should just specify that when Jesse means he's into Yola Tango in terms of tapes, he doesn't just mean that... He doesn't just want the vinyl and the CD format. He, he enjoys their releases as they exist on cassette format. No, he means literally live recordings, live tapes. Yes, the is, proverbial is this, tapes. Is this why when you look at bands like Fish, 
PH. There seems to be a gazillion fish in New Orleans, 13th of October, 12th. There's, there's, the, the internet is, is awash with these things. It's, Jeffrey, have you, were you a Grateful Dead type collector? <laughs> Not as, I mean, I have. Yeah, okay, well, anyway, as far as the Grateful Dead and tapes and live tapes and what Jesse said about Yola Tango live tapes, um, I'm unaware, I've wondered this for a while, but, um, you know, obviously for bands in the, in the 70s particularly, but 60s and 70s, the live album was a thing. And as of yet, there isn't really, there's no Yola Tango live album, is there? Um, whereas, you know, the Grateful Dead from very early on in their career, Live Dead, the, the, the double album Live Dead that came out in 1970 is, you know, I think maybe the fourth official Grateful Dead album is already a live album. And it's one of the all-time classic Grateful Dead albums, whereas Yola Tango could have been releasing. In fact, they even mock, in the, in the video for Sugar Cube, they mock the idea that they should release a double live album. There's a little joke in that video. So for some reason, even though their live shows are such a spectacular element of what Yola Tango is all about, and really a band that, similar to The Grateful Dead, the idea of getting to know the band via only their studio recordings without seeing them live, you're really going to miss a big chunk of what makes this band I think if you only knew Yola Tango from the studio recordings you would be you would think this band was awesome and you would love the variety you would love the you know the the melodic element the noisy element the creativity the personality but on the true artistry of this band the true genius of Yola Tango is the way that they approach what a live concert can be the way that they use their artistic sensibility towards the curation of a set list and the experience of a live concert as a unique thing that happens on that one night only that will never be repeated no matter how many times you see them um that element of their artistic creativity is so important to their identity that i think merely a discussion of their studio albums is interesting but it sh we should make clear that that you know for those of us who are massive yola tango fans it's that live experience that's a big part of that um this is going to be the point where after somebody passionately explains that the live thing is just as important i'm now going to say but and jeffrey how about the first album? <laughs> no, no, but totally, I totally understand um, how the live thing with some bands, and I want us to come back to that later, particularly as their sound evolves, but in terms of the first album. Yeah, I love it. I love that first record. Um, unlike Jesse, who thinks of it as sort of a, a footnote, a uh, little appendage, we see when I first got into Yola Tango in 1996, circa the release of uh, Electro Pura, which came out, I think, in 1995, um, and I first started seeing their shows in 96 and just became a diehard fan, I started getting my hands on all of their albums wherever I could find them at that time, whether I ended up getting it on a CD or on a cassette or on a used vinyl. So by the time nothing turned itself inside out, or um, I guess by the time I Can Hear the Heart Beating as one came out, 1997 or 98-ish, I already had all, of, I had accumulated all of their previous albums. So to me, they're... Their body, the first 10 years of their body of work was part of my initial dive into like, this band is now one of my favorite bands. Oh, here's a record of theirs I haven't got before. It's only $7 on used vinyl here at my local shop. I'll check this one out. I don't know anything about it. So Ride the Tiger came to me in that way. Um, and my brother Jack shared my, my huge fandom. So we would always be bringing home and we shared a bedroom. So we would always kind of be like, hey, I got this Yellow Tango album or we'd, you know. So I love Ride the Tiger. Um, it's a great 
melodic rock album with some cool noisy elements. I definitely, I differentiate pretty heavily between the pre-James McNew, Yola Tango, and um, I feel like when James joins the band, it's like, okay, now the real Yola Tango story starts. So those early albums are kind of a slightly different band identity before it coalesces around the, the power trio of, of uh, Georgia Ira and James. Yeah, so on that, um, and we'll probably cover it because uh, James turned up with May I Sing With Me? Am I correct? I, I'm often wrong with things, so feel free to, to tell me I'm wrong when, I, when I'm... Um, there was like a revolt. It was like Spinal Tap for bassists, but without the deaths, right? There was just the bassists just kept disappearing and coming back. And additional... Yeah, about it. Uh, and more additional guitarists as well. I mean, they, they are not like... I feel like them as a three-piece band which kind of goes with like, yo, La Tank. It's like three words in the name, three people in the band. <laughs> There's something about that identity that really clicks once James becomes a solid member of the band, then it really becomes this unit of this little family of three. Um, whereas on the earlier albums, there's like more musicians involved sometimes. And, um, but however, unlike, you know, the way Jesse thought this album sounded like a little collection of demos or sort of an unformed band, I'm always astonished at how fully developed they, like this is like uh-huh. if some friends of mine were like, "Hey, we just put out an album. We've been a band for like a year or two, I'd be totally blown away. I mean, the songs, the musicianship, the <laughs> the ability to still even from the get go, there's this Ira's guitar playing, his ability to play like real guitar where he can actually play an actual solo and do finger picking and do you know real songs, and his interest in being noisy and kind of like exploding the parameters of what you would think a guitarist would would do melodically and and with incorporating you know screeching sounds is so exciting and it's all that's all present in there and plus you have the ira and georgia like here's this couple she's playing the drums he's playing guitar so and it's awesome i mean the songs are awesome the recordings are great i think even if there was no later yola tango this would still be a fantastic 80s indie rock album and people would buy this record the same way they buy you know, the first Dream Syndicate album or the first Feelies album or something. It's like an 80s indie rock, mid-80s classic. Um, I think, and I think I'm think i going to take what you just said about how it actually sounded quite developed for a first album and take that moving into New Wave Hot Dogs. Um, I found that when I first listened to New Wave Hot Dogs, it sounded simpler and almost less accomplished as an album i mean whether or not it's they were just trying something different they're different musicians different producers maybe um i found that the sound sort of simplified a little bit i mean it starts with clunk which is which is great um let's compromise also there's some good stuff in there but i found the sound changed dramatically and ben what happened uh well they did simplify their sound a bit uh you know on that on that first album uh dave schram plays on it and he would he would come back into the lineup uh, uh occasionally but uh so dave schram is is out of there for new wave hot dogs um and um ira who is you know as jeffrey was saying was pretty already pretty accomplished for a young man on guitar on that first album he has to really step it up both for guitar playing and i would say his vocals as well he's he's getting more and more confident um and uh, Dave Schramm actually does some vocals on that first album, but it's it's just Ira. Of course, we're still kind of waiting to hear George's vocals. Those those will come a bit later when it turns out, you know, she's really the, the secret weapon there. Um, and so, I mean, when I listen to that, I, I, I hear Ira still kind of um, figuring out the direction that he wants to take the band. He's He's got so many different ideas, so many influences. He's kind of immersed in that, you know, jangle rock sound of you know bands like the DBs or the Feelies who were 
who he was friends with and who would they would all play at Maxwell's in Hoboken. Um, and, uh, you know, you get you get, uh, a, you know, the Obscura Velvet Underground track, you know, showing their their influences. And then, um, you know, even more obscure, the song you mentioned, Let's Compromise, that was done by this band called Information, um, which, uh, you know, Ira knew from back in the day when he was uh, when he was a rock journalist for um, for New York rocker. Uh, Jesse, I'm sure can uh, correct me if I'm making any historical errors here. Oh, yeah. I was going to say the empty the empty pool was a cover song of a song that wasn't even released yet at that point. That was a song by uh, Young Woo, which was a spinoff band of the Feelies. And they eventually put that album. They put that song out after New Wave Hot Dogs came out on their on their album on Coyote Records. But uh, but Yola Tango's cover predated predated the official version that is the ultimate uh, cool hipster way to cover somebody we're covering <laughs> stuff you haven't even released yet um nick i'm going to come to you uh, just just uh, you also like me are a relatively relative newcomer uh to yoda tango um ride the tiger new wave hot dogs i mean this early college rock 80s band how how did you find it um difficult to get hold of is the honest answer i <laughs> i couldn't i didn't get a chance to listen to it this week it's just not, a, it's really hard to get hold of in Europe. That's great that there's still obscure music out there. I'm serious. <laughs> <laughs> you you got to work for it. <laughs> I, I literally had to take a, a one month subscription to Tidal. Other music streaming services are available uh, so that I could actually hear it. Um, Jeffrey, over to you. Um, what do you think changed? Uh, or maybe on a songwriting level or on a musicianship level? Well, I have to admit that my experience of New Wave Hot Dogs is a little scrambled because I own it on the double out. Like, they, it's this mid 90 this came out in 96. Um, it's a double album reissue of President Yola Tango and New Wave Hot Dogs in one, like, maxi LP edition. And I didn't even consciously realize until right now that this double LP edition puts President Yola Tango first and New Wave Hot Dogs is the second disc. So that's I've never <laughs> I've never even consciously realized like, oh, wait a minute, that's not the order they, I'm, all these years, the, the entire time that I've been listening, the 25 years that I've been listening to this record, I'm experiencing those in non-chronological order. Uh, my OCD brain is, is freaking out. <laughs> I, I think it's an amazing collection of songs. It's very interesting to me to wonder what a fan might have thought, somebody who bought uh, ride the tiger and then this came out afterwards like what was somebody thinking and who was buying these like how popular were these records at the time um was it just a very small handful of people that how rare is the original version of new wave hot dogs i don't know if i've ever seen an original copy of it ever anywhere it, do, it doesn't exist in europe as, as we've discovered uh, um yeah but yeah i i managed i when i was streaming it it was the, the double uh, President Yoda Tenga New Wave Hot Dogs. And I had to go and look on Wikipedia to find out which song to first. So that's a totally weird sort of situation. Um, I, I understand the band in the first two albums uh, as someone coming to you. I understand who they are and what they do. I will be honest, over the last week and a half, the more I've listened to and started to like and even love uh, bits of Yoda Tenga, the less I've understood who they are as a group, some bands I can pigeonhole. That's this band. That's this band. Some bands have periods. Some bands, like Yola Tango, seem to be twelve different bands in one album, yet still the same the same artist. Um, 
I'm still struggling to understand who they are. Um, and I think it was with President Yola Tengo, moving on to the next one, that I first started to get a bit confused. <laughs> I thought I knew who this band was. And then we've got, what, um, two versions of the evil that men do. Um, it was going back, slightly going back to what you said earlier about they've not done a live album. This sounded like an attempt to have a live experience vinyl with these sort of wig outs and going uh, going off in different directions and two versions of one thing. Um, the, yeah, this is when I got confused a little bit and I had to stop and have a cup of tea. Okay, well, I, can I, can I, I'd like to step, because I actually want to mention, say something about New Wave Hot Dogs before we get fully immersed in the future stuff, because everything that Jeffrey said about the first album is kind of what I feel about New Wave Hot Dogs, where I kind of see their songwriting starting to coalesce and kind of the way that I think about Yola Tengo, like exactly like you said, other bands have periods and I kind of think of Yola Tengo as having like threads that they have these kind of like different ideas that are kind of developed that kind of come in and out of their music over the course of you know all these these different decades where kind of like jangle pop is in there and you've you've got you know noisy like straight up you know screeching guitars but also this very atmospheric side and then this thread of of you know kind of creating their own songbook of covers like kind of their own repertoire of you know their canon of you know their favorite extremely obscure artists and 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 all of these things are kind of like in different balances on all these different projects and and for me i see that i guess with ride the tiger it's kind of like murky for me and i kind of see them beginning to emerge with new wave hot dogs and then kind of every, and then president yolatengo and kind of everything that after comes after that it's kind of like the introduction of like new characters it's like oh and they can jam too you know then mm-hmm. that you know that's kind of like a lot of what president yolatengo is for me it's like oh whoa you know that those versions of the evil men do like appeal you know Jeffrey already hijacked us into Grateful Deadland, but I am also from 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 that world very very much. And like hearing those multiple versions of the evil that men do, it's like oh, it's like the song isn't like this sacred thing, like where it's just like oh, this is the song as it was recorded on the album, and that's how it's going to be. And then every live version has to replicate how it was on the album. It's like no, we're going to put two different versions of the same song on the album that are totally different and you know that's already a cover of our song from a previous record and it kind of creates this you know it's something that's to me it like points to a musical world that's like beyond what you're hearing on the albums and and that's like sort of the, the grateful daddy appeal to me is that the albums are really like the like you know the, the tip of the iceberg or or you know just sort of like one one piece of the puzzle so they're sort of creating their own universe that they keep popping into as they go through the albums I'm yeah, to- and, and inventing it as they go you know and I, I wanted to point out also when you were talking about your experience of hearing these albums for the first time and trying to figure out who this band is in a chronological way which is a wonderful i think that's such a great experiment i'm so jealous of you getting that <laughs> very people very rare i i kind of thought like well, one day, you know, if I ever have a kid, it would be a good science experiment if I just introduced them to the Beatles one album at a time chronologically. Because nobody gets to experience a band that way. You always hear, like, they're more popular, you know, whatever the... And then you hear the earlier stuff retroactively. So it's very rare outside of the moment when these things are actually being released that somebody experiences the development, the cognitive development of a band. And that's a magical, wonderful thing. I mean, can you imagine getting into the first... Beatles album and then the next release and then like whoa this is getting interesting with the next release and then you know (laughs) and then experiencing that development as an actual linear progression rather than just a hodgepodge like all of us experience Bob Dylan as a hodgepodge we experience 
you know, the fall as a hodgepodge. Like nobody gets a chronological I, listen. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in right now because <laughs> Nick has this big grin on his face. Um, this podcast came out of a Facebook and the Facebook group. Nick, how did that Facebook group start? Basically, in uh, 2015, me and a bunch of friends decided to listen to the entire full discography in chronological order, <laughs> and then somehow was anybody hearing it? Was anybody hearing it all for the first time? Um, there were a few non-fans. I imagine they knew bits of it, but that was also what was kind of exciting about it for me. I mean, I was, I was already a huge Fall fan at that point, but I'd never tried to listen to them all in, in order like that. Um, but yeah, it was kind of interesting hearing them with people who were also kind of, yeah, were discovering it. And, uh, you know, there were mixed reactions. Um, Ewan famously doesn't like the fall, and uh, I, I... <laughs> it's a very personal thing about Marky e. Smith with John Peel and the night John Peel died, and I bear a grudge. But that's a different story and a different podcast. Was there ever a yeah. Yola Tango Peel session? Did Yola Tango ever do a Peel session? They did. They did. Uh, there's actually a track from it on their brand new uh, release, uh, their their cover of uh, uh, "Train to Cry" by Bob Dylan. They didn't record it there. They they recorded it in Hoboken. And and mailed it in and they apparently lost their master <laughs> um but yes there and i think there might be a couple but that that's that's definitely one of them well anyway, um, i i what i meant I, to say, what i meant to say before i sidetracked everybody is that i love in uh in jesse's book big day coming um there's a description somewhere in here that i remember i don't remember what page it was on but talking about their early years and how the band sort of started to gain an identity in a sort of, I think you say something about the negative space. They started to, by first deciding that they on tour they were not going to play any songs that they had played the previous night, and they started started to define themselves by what they were not. These sort of sets of rules of like, okay, well we're not going to do, and they sort of start the Yellow Tango identity starts to take shape out of this negative space of um, these different kind of self definitions. So I forget exactly how you worded it, but that really stuck with. I thought that was a very beautiful yeah. image, the way that you put that. And I don't know what page that was on in the book, but I'm trying to remember I, the one. The, the the part of the pop song is actually before they were Yola Tango, they were uh, a, a variety of cover bands, uh, George, Georgia and those guys mainly, and they made a rule during that era that they didn't repeat any cover songs from party to party, and they learned like you know thirty or forty different cover songs like you know to back their friends kind of like live live human karaoke um and now i think that was kind of one 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 beginning of that um i'm gonna i'm gonna take what you sorry i'm gonna take what you just said and slightly move us on you can come back if you want but i think mm -hmm. it's a perfect segue also i'm very conscious we've only got to the third album um, <laughs> i'm talking about the cover the fact that they do lots of they they were a covers and um I'm a big fan of, of bands that do good things and who cover interest. And this does lead us on to fake um, rather nicely, um, which was 1990, Ben? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. 1990. Uh, yeah, I was in college then. This was my introduction to the band. I didn't know about their their noisier side, their more uh, improvisational or even avant-garde side. Um, when I first encountered Yola Tango, they were like, oh, they're, they're a band that does these, you know, cool covers from this album, Fake Book. Um, and they had this kind of you know, folk rock, country rock sound to a lot of the, a lot of the songs. Um, you know, they're, they're, and they're, they're clearly into, you know, bands like the Flying Burrito Brothers or, uh, or the Kinks or NRBQ, one of Ira's favorites. Um, and they just, it's like, oh, this is cool. It's a band that's just playing music that they like. And then I would dig a little deeper and be like, oh, they're actually also covering their own songs like Barnaby Hardly Working. That's, you know, that was, uh, that was from President Yola Tango. And then Did I Tell You, which is one of my favorite Yola Tango songs, perhaps my favorite. It has special 
meeting for my wife and me, but uh, did I tell you was, you know, first on New Wave Hot Dogs and then gets this beautiful reinterpretation on fake book. Um, and so, you know, that, that was, that was what I thought Yola Tango was. Of course, as I followed them through their career, they became all these other bands as well, but I'll always have a, you know, a soft spot in my heart for, for his fake book songs. I mean a lot to me. Um, for me, the one that stood out, probably because we did Daniel Johnson on the Facebook group within the last year was Speed and Motorcycle. Uh, I think I, that's one I'd heard before I went went to um but yeah it was, it was lovely it was really nice and there were songs i'd never heard and but if that had been the first album i'd ever come to i would not have expected after four um I mean, it's a bit weird to talk about a covers album but it was relatively important yeah at the time did it get them any semblance of success from it did well it get any- yeah um well i mean it's certainly a hook to talk about that it's a covers album and it's not you know that is the hook, but there's a bunch of original songs on there too, you know, that are fantastic. Um, and oddly, Speeding Motorcycle was sort of uh, kind of a, uh, you know, a hook for indie successor. And they put, there's a single version of Speeding Motorcycle, not the album version of them backing Daniel Johnston uh, live on WFMU, uh, which is kind of a miraculous event by itself. Um, but that was released as, as a single. And that, that was kind of one of their sort of their breakthroughs and kind of like the, the late, you know, late 80s, early 90s, like, you know, indie college rock zine world, sort of a mini hit. But Facebook was definitely was definitely a breakthrough. And, you know, so when that's when Georgia really arrives as a singer, like I was saying, it's kind of the introduction of these different characters and different threads. And my God, you know, Georgia, like it's it's kind of amazing that they were a band for, you know, basically more than a half a decade before she became it's, you know, it's like, oh, my, you know, kind of a singer that a lot of people identify with that band we had just glimmers of that on the earlier albums like alida you know that you know there were songs where georgia was kind of tentatively taking lead vocals but yeah fake book it's like this is the way the band should be from now on obviously so um, it's great and, to hear and that. jeffrey um we, we talked a little bit we mentioned earlier on about they had this rotating uh selection of bass players and, and musicians which in the next album which will come to soon um it seemed to stop and steady um for me fake book seems like the end of a period um, there's this sort of run-up period to Fakebook, and then things change after that. Am I wrong on this? Uh, how do you see it? Well, in my opinion, which doesn't seem to be widely shared, I mean, I, in of the albums that I consider like the first phase of, like you know, up until um, I can hear the heart beating as one, say, which which seems like, and then you know, like Genius Plus Love, which is also sort of like a collection that which I would include in the discography, really. But um, the Fake book is like maybe my is like my least favorite of for the first ten years worth of records, like the eighties and nineties albums. It's one that I very rarely I can't even remember the last time I listened to it. I I, uh, I guess I only have do I maybe I only have it on cassette, which is part of why I don't return to it often. But I, it's like by the end, it kind of it just goes on too long for me. It doesn't have the it doesn't have as much variety on it. You know, like. When you know emulsify comes on, I'm like, okay, great, a little action. <laughs> it kind of just hits the same sort of mid tone. Like it doesn't have as much variety on it as the other albums, and it, yeah, I, I just feel like when I listen to that album, I'm kind of ready to be done listening to it, and there's still like seven songs left. <laughs> so, so, so could, could could we say that maybe I mean Yola Tango were a band who over the years 
have developed multiple threads, multiple styles, sometimes on the same album, sometimes in different albums. Yet maybe with this album, they only approached the covers with one of their styles or one or two, and they left some of the other facets of Yola Tengo to the side. Yeah, somewhat, yeah. although that could have been their new direction. I mean, every album after Fake Book could have had that. They could have been like, oh, well, we're leaving behind our youthful, noisy elements, and now we are a mature, nice-sounding band. I mean, there was no reason to believe that that wouldn't be who would have thought that they would get so noisy again on the next, re- you know, that they would turn more back in a rock direction. And I, I, well, I think that's a very big personality thing with them. Uh, you know, I think fake book when they did it was, was definitely a breakthrough. It's really the first where you can actually kind of like, if you've never heard them before, you can listen to that record and sort of say, Oh yeah, they're, this is who they are. Like it's a, it's a pretty obvious, straightforward record in a lot of ways. And I think when that, and I, I know when that record came out, they started getting invitations to like, Oh, you know, come do this acoustic gig or this thing. And I think they really pushed against that and really, you know, they didn't intend it to be like, this is who we are now forever. I think for them, it was just like, this is one of the things that we do. And it's manifesting on this record. And I think there was a lot of, I think there was a lot of pushback. I think, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of Yola Tango is sometimes born out of, you know, like, you know, creative, fi- creative ways to not do what they're asked to do. <laughs> um, what, you know. what Ewan was saying about not being able to really tell who they are is, is that there's a sort of stubborn refusal to be defined by the last thing that they did. And even though there is a very consistent sound throughout the discography, it, it does feel very much like they never got to a point where they said, well, this is who we are now. This is what we do. And you can know what to expect from us in future. You know, before uh, I will, we move on, sorry, go ahead. I, I will right. say, I'm going to come back to that idea of, of progressing and not changing in approximately five albums' time. Um, ben. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, before we move on from Fake Book, uh, it was very interesting to hear Jeffrey's take on it. Um, it. Perhaps he's not a fan of the album overall, if it sounds a bit too much the same, but there's one song on there that I definitely associate with Jeffrey because I saw him uh, chip in on a performance of it at the 20, at a 2018 Hanukkah show for Yola Tango when they had Peter Stamfel on stage uh, to join in on Griselda, a Peter Stamfel song from the great album Have Moisey. Um, and so uh, one of the special guests that night was Peter Stamfel. And of course, they did Griselda and uh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey was right there alongside them. Uh, Jeffrey and Peter Stamfel have collaborated many times over the years. So in my mind, at least, uh, you know, Jeffrey, I, I think of you having that connection to at least that one song. Well, th- without getting too far into the weeds, they had me on stage that night doing a Fugs song. Um, oh, no, new, that's new, true. Am- new Amphetamine Shriek, which is partially, which is like, because I have this whole thing, the history of the development of punk on the Lower East Side, where the song, one of the songs that I use to talk about the history of Lower East Side music is New Amphetamine Shriek, Shriek which was a Fugs song that happened to be written by Peter Stanfield when he was in the Fugs. So I think just knowing that I'm somewhat associated with this Lower East Side history of punk essay thing that I once wrote. And uh, since they had Stample on stage, it somehow made sense to bring me to join. Like, you know, they always have reason. I love that Yola Tango always has reasons for what they do. It's quite brilliant. That's one of the most brilliant things about them. When you see them play a gig, they're playing these, they're picking their set list and their covers and their choices of guests for specific reasons that may or may not be obvious to the audience, but they're brilliant. And they always outsmart you. They, you always think like, oh, because this, I know what the, such and such was in the news today. And so you always, you start to like 
try to put yourself in their head and think of what they're going to do and why they're going to do it. And then they come up with something that's even more brilliant than you thought. They're like, they, so yeah, when they had me on stage, it was to participate with Peter Stanfall on a performance of New Amphetamine Shriek, which is, uh, which is a Fugs song that Stanfall wrote and kind of the, just the through line. And also just because it was at a, it was at the Bowery Ballroom and it was like, yeah. And, and, it, there were there are a few different threads of why it made sense to have me on join on stage for that one song with Peter. Um, but I have performed Griselda is a song that I've done because I've done a number of tours. I have a sort of side project band that's the the Jeffrey Lewis and Peter Stanfall band, and we've done a couple albums together and some tours together. So Griselda is one of the songs that I've performed with Peter Stanfall when when we've toured together. Um, but I was not I did not play Griselda on stage with Yola Tango and Peter Stanfall okay. that night at the Bowery. It was new amphetamine shriek by the fugs okay. that we did together. <laughs> sorry, sorry for yeah. uh, getting the, the, tri- the uh, I mean concert order wrong there. But but <laughs> but, connect, but connected to that 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 thought, one of the things that I just deeply love about you know, not every single cover Yola Tango does, but but a lot of them, and you know, new amphetamine shriek and and the other fug songs I've seen them do, and and a lot of fake book, is that you don't think of them as like a folk band really, but I feel like a lot of the music that they pull that they cover really does come out of the 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 scene the kind of lineage that they're that they're part of they they play songs that their friends wrote they you know they they play songs by you know by pe- people like Peter Stample who's sort of you know they're they're elder in kind of this underground New York music scene um and I you know so that is you know it's sort of like what Jeffrey was saying there's there's such a conscious choice behind almost you know behind everything they do <laughs> every single thing they do and um and the, the 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 choices of covers there's there's always there's there's always a lot of resonance there. Right, and you could you could get by the fact that Peter Stample was there that night as one of their special guests, and the fact that they did a Michael Hurley cover on their most recent record at that time. People like Jesse and I were already thinking, you know what, they're going to have Stample play on that Michael Hurley cover because Stample and Hurley are old musical acquaintances going back to the '60s, and they have the Have Moisey album together. That's, uh, you know, that Griselda comes from this album. That was a Michael Hurley, Peter Stample collaboration. So spot on. Yes, they had Peter Stample up on stage to do the Michael Hurley cover with them. So that kind of little mathematical equation is something that like super fans like Jesse and myself are already calculating like, okay, I know we're going to get, which is something that was so much fun at Grateful Dead shows too, doing these kind of calculations before the show. Like, okay, Tonight, Jerry's going to sing the first song, and they haven't done Mississippi Half Step yet on this tour. And so there's always like little reasons why you can figure out or try to figure out what they're thinking. So, um, yeah, that that goes into that as well. Okay, um, it's probably a good time to 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 move on to when they get they finally settle on a bassist. Um, new joins for uh, May I Sing with Me. Um, the sound seems to change a little bit, not so much as maybe the next album, which we'll get to. But after having that bookend of other people's songs, we're back to their stuff. And how has their stuff changed by this point, Ben? Well, I think the addition of James McNew, as uh, Jeffrey and Jesse were saying, really solidified their sound at this point. Um, and yes, they're they're turning their back on the the pleasant uh, sort of country rock sound of, of Fake Book, and they're getting noisy again. Um, uh, but you know, there's still some, I mean, there are some extremely noisy parts like mushroom cloud of hiss, um, which is one of the great ones, which again, you can only imagine Ira just going nuts on that one, the way that 
he often does in concert on that kind of jam with lots of, you know, feedback drenched sounds um, that became, you know, an important part of their repertoire at that point. But then you get something like Upside Down, again, like one of my favorite songs of theirs, which, you know, in a perfect world would have been, you know, a radio hit. It's just like this really great power pop song. Um, so they're just showing their range, you know, they're just very confident across this whole range of genres. Um, and, um, George's drumming sounds great. I mean, the whole, the whole package is there with, with, uh, James on bass, um, that, you know, it was sort of the launching point. I, I still think of May I Sing With Me as kind of a lesser album because the ones that follow are so good. Um, but you can see, you know, they, they have a handle on what they want to be at this point. Yeah. They're starting the run up towards the later stuff. Um, Nick. Um, you you couldn't you couldn't find the the earlier stuff. It was too obscure for for Budapest. Um, were you able to were you able to find to, to be able to listen to uh, May I Sing with Me? And what did you think of the evolution of sound as someone else who was coming through them? Yeah, I think I mean you know again this is this is the caveat that I didn't really get to listen to the very early stuff. But this is kind of where I do start enjoying them for sure. Um, they just feel like there's a uh, uh, moving on in the sound, and, and and I wasn't. I mean, you know, there's bits of fake book I like, but I'm not as comfortable with the kind of country sound of that. So when they kind of, I guess, move more towards kind of indie rock kind of sounds, that's when I. It's kind of my more. It's more my comfort zone, I guess. I guess so. I mean, I, and for me, with this album and the one that followed, um, there was definitely a shoegaze sound that sort of came into it. Um, Actually, was shoegaze a thing in the US? I was wondering that actually, because I kind of associate you with tango a bit with shoegaze, but I don't remember. I don't really think of a shoegaze thing in the US. Well, they, I mean, they played shows with My Bloody Valentine in, in, in England, and they were definitely, they were definitely grouped in with that at the time. I mean, they, it's, I mean, that's a really, Yola Tango are chameleon like in that they got grouped in with so many different periods and so many different things. You know, you look at early reviews from like Ride the Tiger and they're, you know, called Amera Indie, which is kind of like this, you know, you know, Robert Criscow's term for like, you know, jangly indie rock. And then later they get called, you know, college rock or then they become shoegaze. And I'm positive I've read things that called them grunge and then they become indie rock. <laughs> and it's, you know, they, they become all these and then, you know, it's Yellow Tango. It's kind of them in the middle. And and when James joined, to, I mean, I and I'm, you know, if you ask them, that's when they became that's when they became Yellow Tango. He's such a brilliant bassist. And I, do, you know, it, it, it's not like, you know that's that's sort of the role of the bass is it's not always not always totally obvious but he's so melodic and it's um it had an effect on like the earlier stuff too like you know i i went back and actually i was i just compared versions of the story of jazz from the 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 studio version from from new of hot dogs with the with a james version and it just becomes a different song like he he has this whole melodic counterpoint bass line that just like pulls everything together and i feel like that he just played that role so well and he just it made all it he reflects well on their earlier material and just you know so may i sing with me is just this is it, it's such a pivot album in that way though he's you know like like ben was saying you know they, they get so much better right after that because he's it's sort of a batch of songs where um he wasn't yet part of the writing process which which comes in after that so it's yeah Great, great stuff. Oh, and what, what, what I want to add one more thing, which is that, you know, we talk about how these albums are really, you know, they, they, they change a lot between the albums. You don't necessarily know what you're going to get from one album to the other. But live, that's the thing is that they were consistent live. And you you kind of know that when you go see a Tango live, really starting kind of in this period when James joins the band, that you're going to get these amazing guitar jams. And you're going to get these amazing, like atmospheric 
you know, space outs, which is kind of starts in this period as well. And, you know, that that does and you're going to get, you know, sort of fake bookie kind of covers and, and quiet and quiet country moments. And you're, you're going to get all of that at once. So the live show was always kind of like a consistent counterpoint to these albums where they were kind of exploring all these different things. If you went to see them live, you'd probably get all of that in one night, you know, many nights. Well, I, a, a couple of things. I'm first uh, uh, again, like my um, the fact that I don't rate Facebook, a uh, 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 fake book, very highly. I <laughs> I do rate. Um, may I sing with me? Is I might almost call it my favorite Yellow Tango record. It certainly would be in wow. my top my top three. Um, if somebody was looking to get into Yellow Tango, and I was going to recommend a couple records for them to check out, this would be one of them. Um, it's song by song. And sound by sound, I just find this album devastatingly good. Um, I like it better than Painful. I know people will be uh, weirded out to hear me say that, but that just seems obvious to me. Um, you know, Detouring America with Horns, perfect opening track. Uh, Upside Down as the second track, amazing. Uh, followed by third track, Mushroom Cloud of Hiss. Like, who's mo- hearing this record, one song after another, whose jaw is not on the floor? It's it just dem- like what is this bit this band this is the greatest you know and then you've got the complete atmospheric on um, you know always something and satellite are these creepy atmospheric hooky you know amazing songs that just haunt you and stay with you um out the window 86 second blowout and then sleeping pill this other incredible wash drone which to my mind is much better than i heard you looking i you know i just this record i just eat it up i just this is just essence of perfection um give it you know i there's i could probably do you know six and a half minutes of five cornered drone i could maybe this album would be you know maybe a little more perfect without that that's like not as mind-blowing as the other stuff on it but still in all this gets absolute top marks from me and, and also i think it's very important that this is evidence that the classic Yola Tango masterpiece sound is not, they had it before Roger Mutino entered the picture. Like, I love those albums that Roger produced, and they're complete masterpieces, but if not for this record, you would be tempted to attribute that master period to his production, because he produced all the other albums of that era. So this one is also kind of like a little proof that like it's the band themselves, not just the production, that has that incredible sound. And one um, more thing, when you're talking about when you're talking about the guitar freakouts on uh, Mushroom Cloud of Hiss and the other stuff that Ira was doing and that he'd continue to do through this period, um, I'm going to take a guess and say that this guitar pedal that I'm holding up here, um, which you're not going to be able to see on the audio version of this podcast, the DL Line yeah. Six Loop pedal, which was probably top of the line. Uh, digital guitar pet. It's this giant thing that no, you know. I'm, I don't, I used to carry these around on tour like 15 years ago, but it's it's so heavy and big, and I don't bother. And it only makes a 20 second loop. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of Ira's sound and a lot of the kind of experiments that they were doing had something to do with this particular pedal being an Ira's pedal lineup at that time. The way that you hear those little repeating squeaks and mushroom cloud, because this only records a 20 second loop. You can't, you know, so you keep hearing these things weaving in and out and creating this beautiful texture um, in a way that I don't think you would have done without the limitations of this pedal. Um, I think their move kind of into the atmospheric stuff and, and Ira discovering how to do things like that is kind of maybe like the missing piece in a lot of ways between kind of the noisier early 
Yola Tango stuff and then the the the, the quieter songy things that they got into with fake book it's you know i i think when you have this kind of middle ground where it is it is very jammy and it is you know it does appeal to my grateful dead brain um i i I think that is the that sort of the tissue between between the different the different parts of the band okay Uh, so i mean would you say that that may i sing with me and 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 the follow-up uh painful are companion pieces to each other as they sort of evolved, they got settled in the new lineup, or is there much difference between the two? Well, painful was for them a real, that was a big breakthrough for them. That was where they kind of went, you know, they demoed everything. They spent, you know, months and months in the rehearsal space. That was the first one where they really collaborative, collaboratively writing with James and his voice, especially his singing voice. Holy shit. Uh, that's when that <laughs> kind of, you know, kind of comes into things. Um, so I think that, you know, companions yes but i'm gonna have to go back and re-listen to man jeffrey you just made an amazing case for me for me i sing with me i'm going to listen to that later yeah. <laughs> yeah, i'll be right back <laughs> but um but yeah paint <laughs> yeah, yeah i yeah i it's funny because i i kind of sometimes forget about may i sing with me just in my own memory of the band because like I said, fake book was this, my introduction to it, even though it was kind of a misleading introduction because that wasn't really what the band was about as a whole. Um, but may I sing with me? I, I don't remember listening to it when it was new, but I definitely remember listening to Painful because you know when that came out in 1993, I was out of college living in New York and it was just, it, I just associated with that time in New York so vividly. Um, so yeah, may I sing with me for me gets a little lost in the shuffle and then boom, painful. This is the band, you know, and the band that I would sort of become obsessed with. And, you know, that's, you know, starting with painful. And I, yeah. that's how I, I remember them. I mean, it's been interesting for me because obviously 1993, I've been trying to place what was happening with generally music everywhere. And UK was going through certain periods. And, and my opinion of America was, oh, grunge is gone. I don't know what grunge is sort of still happening over there. Um, listening to painful, I was like, oh, this is, this is like a My Bloody Valentine. This is their Loveless. This is they've they've suddenly got this big, spacious yet intricate wall of sound with melodies in there. Um, but I, I I would not have placed it as an album from 1993. I'd have maybe put it a couple of years. Up. One thing about that time period. Well, actually, I I I um I'm going to act like I'm adding a smart comment, but Jesse has already written extensively about this in his book. So. <laughs> you know the funding that was available for indie music right. you suddenly enter a completely different realm painful is like a very high budget album and it sounds like it and that you can't compare that to something like new wave hot dogs or you know like their earlier records i don't know what the budgets were on those records but it's kind of like the difference between you know say jim jarmusch or some other indie filmmaker that starts off making you know these low budget films and then finally it's like here's Yola Tango with a Hollywood budget, like because of Nirvana and because of the entire escalation of the independent music realm into like million dollar budgets and, you know, multi-million selling albums, you have, you know, a label like Matt Painful is also the first record that they put out on Matador. And the same thing happened. I mean, listen to the fall, but going back to the fall, you know, at the same era, the fall started putting out records on Matador and they're very well produced, like, high price tag record they sound incredible so painful is kind of like a beneficiary of this increase in the ability to fund this kind of music and it's like big technicolor inc- i mean it's an incredible album but it doesn't 
it loses a little bit of the scrappiness of the earlier phase. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it, when you talk about the grandeur and the majesty of that record, there's something about the budget of it that I think is part of that. Right. Which is interesting because they were, you know, I think a lot of that was actually self-budgeted at the time. So part of the discovery in that period is like how to make, how to record this kind of music, you know, because they were still there that, that I think they made painful. They were still technically signed for to alias. And then, yeah, so it was really, I mean, it was really a leap of confidence for them. I think was a lot of, was a lot is also a lot of what's being heard on that album that they have enough confidence to say that we're not like just a scrappy DIY band that's going to go and crank out like a guitar trio album, you know, in, in a week of just guitar based drums, vocals, Hey, we're done. You know, this is like the first time I think they have enough confidence to take themselves seriously enough to, to like really like go through an album process like that and demo everything. And like, you know, add those acoustic guitar overdubs and those extra vocals and the atmosphere or whatever, you know, and it is that is it that thing that Jeffrey Jeffrey pointed out that because they have that budget they can go back with confidence and say oh yeah we just need to do this bit again rather than studio times up in two hours uh, we don't want to pay for any more because there was that money there do you think that made them slightly go over stuff a little bit for the better and maybe sometimes uh, lose that scrappy raw edge that um, Jeffrey pointed out from the previous album well I mean they were so the the way that the this you know, getting getting down into like the, the nitty gritty of how they actually did it maybe takes away a little bit of the magic. But, you know, they spent a bunch of months working on demos in, in Hoboken and then then went to go work with Roger Mutno. Um, wait, no, I take that. Yeah, that was this is the first Mutno record. Sorry, because they demo the, they, they made they demoed it all with with their friend at home. And then, yeah. And then so they, they knew what they were doing for sure. And then went down to Nashville and, you know, finished it on out. Cool. Um, unless anyone's got anything else to say about painful, I'm going to move us on to how would I pronounce? How do you pronounce it? Electopura, Electopura, Electopura. Um, yeah, yeah. Pura. Yeah. I'm, I'm always Pura? conscious with the U sound. Whether like, I could student be wrong. And student, <laughs> whether it's there's an American pronunciation, and I'm just pronouncing it as as an English person. Um, moving on to Electopura, um, which I think I heard for the first time. What day is it today? Friday on Tuesday. And I didn't stop humming Tom Courtney for about three hours to the point that I didn't know what I was humming. There was just this <laughs> thing going around my head. Uh, it was a joy. It, it feels very uh, less planned, less um, structured than, say, painful. There seems to be a bit more of a sort of a fun element to it. But there's some really nice songs. Pablo and Andrea's like a beautiful little track. It seems like a total change again. I, again, I went... I just thought I realized who this band was. <laughs> and then I, I, I was hit in the side with this, this beautiful little this album from, from nowhere. Um, ben, um, you were telling me before we started, there's references on Tom Courtney to Beatles movie Help, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, they sometimes like putting in these playful references. And, and uh, again, Jesse can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this started as kind of Ira doing a song for Georgia, who who really liked all of these you know British movies from the 60s. Um, and so, you know, obviously it starts off talking about Julie Christie um, and the song's called Tom Courtney. But but then there's the whole part with Eleanor Braun in it based on her role in the Beatles movie Help uh, and uh uh, see her in the arms of Paul saying, I can say no more, you know, a line from that movie. Um, and uh, so just just in those little asides like that, I, I mean, Tom Courtney, yeah, fantastic song, incredibly catchy, incredibly tuneful, but they're layering all these 
wonderful things in that you can discover as you dig deeper into it. And so that's a song that I can hear, you know, so many times and get something new out of it, out of it every time. Yola Tingle themselves have recorded it in different styles. There's a beautiful uh, acoustic version with Georgia on lead vocals that uh, that they also recorded. So one of these songs that they continue to come back to, it's probably one um, song that they played, you know, among the most played songs of theirs in their in their songbook, but they always sort of find new things to do with it. Tom, which is great. Tom Courtney's an actor, right? My brain and is telling me. I'm on a bound yeah. to mention that he's from Hull. Oh, ah, <laughs> what thing, things you must realize if you're new to the pod. Nick's from Hull, and apparently, if someone's from Hull, he's on a bound to mention that. <laughs> only happened Hull. twice. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, Tom Courtney is an actor who is yeah. from Hull well, in the north Long, of England. Lana, Billy Liar, that kind of thing. British miserableism from the 60s. Great stuff. <laughs> Um, I'll have so, to remember that next time I play the Adelphi. I'll have to pull out the oh, Adelphi cover. Don't, don't get me started on that place. I love that place. <laughs> That's where I first started going to gigs. I don't know if Yola Tango ever played there. I wonder. Probably. Uh, if you're listening anyway. at home, you can use Google and find this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so other people's thoughts on the Electro Pure. I mean, I thought it was, it was a lovely change, although it was confusing for me. Um, like I said, I thought I knew where the band was going. Uh, Jeffrey. Um, after painful and the big the big soundscapes, we still have that a little bit, but this was a change of mood, right? Uh, yeah, my favorite Yola Tango record, uh, perfect record in my book, um, devastating masterpiece of an album, perfect track order, um, just a, a masterpiece album. It, it you um, you almost where can you go from building up album by album, and then you hit the point where you make may I sing with me and then you make painful and then you make electro pura. It's kind of like they've reached the top of the mountain at this point, And it's just, you know, so multifaceted, so great in every element of it. And just the flow of the tracks, one to the next, the different kinds of approaches to songs, the pro the approaches within the songs, the way that, um, you know, like flying lesson builds up to that really intense ending that the way that they rock on this album, the comp their confidence as a rock band, and the way that even like the you know like Ballad of Red Buckets, the psychedelic intense atmosphere that they build up, the weird guitar sounds, um, this yeah, Electro Pura is uh, is just Yola Tango perfection. I mean, when I think of Yola Tango, basically that's the album that I judge all of their other work by. Like that is the Yola Tango album, in, in my opinion. I, I lost track of it. What year? What year are we at now? This is nineteen ninety five, and as Jeffrey was saying. Um, since I guess we both kind of discovered them as a live act uh, around that same time, when they were doing songs from this uh, from this album plus you know painful, um, they just sounded so good. I mean, it, uh, you know, my first Yolatenko concert was New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety six, at Maxwell. Oh wow! And I was a I was a moderate fan up to that point, but just hearing them do those Electric Pura songs uh, were was just like cemented them as you know this is. This is my new favorite band. Okay, I'm going to see them as often as possible. Yeah, I mean, in in a, in a lot of ways, this is kind of like almost the peak of them as just what you think of as like the indie rock guitar trio of, you know, Ira playing guitar, James playing bass, Georgia playing drums. It's straight ahead. It's amazing. It's kind of working with those tools to like the, the fullest extent. Like I think of, you know, like the like when I think of live Yola Tango, like, you know, fl uh, Flying Lesson uh, is pretty much like the first song that I think of that's kind of to me just like the Yola Tango jam um, 
and yeah, this it, it just encapsulates like the the quintessential live Viola Tango in an al- in album form. And then I th- and to That's me, nice. it's kind of almost like an, an end of a period in that way. Because to me, when you start, when you, I can hear the heart beating. To me, that's when the, the the music starts to be like fuller spectrum with all you know, just lots of different approaches, lots more atmosphere, and a lot of songs that you know. I feel like with Electro Pure, I can I can kind of imagine how songs were written. They 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 sound like a guitar trio um, most to me a lot of the time, except for like Pablo and Andrea. Like how I. God, that's an amazing song. Um, but uh, I feel like when you get to "I Can Hear the Heart Beating" is one like a lot to me. A lot of the songs feel like they kind of like grew out of like not just somebody sitting there strumming a guitar. That's kind of when it really starts to feel like it came out of a group mind and kind of out of this collaborative thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and taking up on that point, obviously, the, while I've been preparing for this pod and, and listening to the albums, I've gone back and I've, I've then gone and read reviews and articles and interviews and tried to see what's happening um the next album i can hear the heartbeat as one is that seems to be there seems to be a line there's pre and there's post and going to what you were saying about how like it, they, they don't they maybe no longer sound like the band that just sat and wrote everything on a guitar everything else is coming in and more all these new facets and, and threads uh going back to what you said earlier um it seems to be when they changed maybe not as a band but people's perceptions of the- I t- I mean to me uh, to me that's the beginning of Maturiola Tango that I can hear the heartbeat one to me that's when they become to me that's when they become the band that they are now f- like fully fully formed kind of willing to try anything really improv friendly that was an album that where they really tried where I think a lot of stuff got born in the studio where they really had the confidence, like, you know, like not have everything planned out to just kind of, you know, start messing around and then like, Oh, you know, let's add vocals to this jam that we had and, you know, build, build songs like that. So it, their, their voice to me, their voice changes and it does become less of Ira's band and more of a, I mean, it was always collaborative, you know, but it becomes, it, to me, it becomes less of like, Oh, there's a the guitar player in a rhythm section and more of like a total, picture that 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 i'm hearing um, um uh, jeffrey said earlier on his ocd was killing him when he realized that song the songs were not in the order that he thought they had been in um what tends to kill me when i listen to music is i've got one of those brains that i can hear another song in everything i, I hear I'm like, oh there's a bit of the bangle now oh there's a little bit of um bobby mcferrin in this song i can i can hear other songs in songs getting to about this stage of Yoda Tango was driving me insane. I could hear everybody else and nobody else. They sounded like nobody, no other band I've, I've listened to, yet I was hearing bits of Dinosaur Jr., Better Sebastian, Velvet Underground. I, I could keep hearing these other bands in them, but then when I looked at it as a whole, they didn't sound like these other bands. It was totally driving me crazy. But this was an album that the first, when I listened to it for the first time, I went, oh yeah, this is a this is a new band now. They've got to a different stage, and they're moving into something. Um, ben, um, this was what ninety eight, ninety seven. This was ninety seven, yeah. And it's nice that we we end the first uh, installment here because just seeing their progression from those early albums, and you know, as as Jesse is saying, they've matured. This is and this is the sound of Yola Tango as we know them. It's got some of their most famous songs. I mean. Um, Sugar Cube, Autumn Sweater, 
Um, hearing James take lead vocals on Stockholm Syndrome is an incredible moment, uh, a real kind of watershed moment for the band, I would say. Um, and uh, yeah, they're they're just firing on all cylinders, and they can they can do the noisy stuff, they can do the quiet stuff, they can even throw in some bossa nova, and somehow that's okay. Um, they they can do it all, and um, it also seemed to me an album that um, uh, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what Jeffrey has to say, but it strikes me as an album that other musicians really gravitated to at the time. Um, even in our Facebook group that's doing the um, immersion on Blur right now, you know, um, uh, I think uh, Graham Coxon was, you know, inspired by Ira's guitar solo in Stockholm Syndrome uh, to do something. And it, like whenever I hear the Wilco song, Heavy Metal Drummer, I'm thinking he's just kind of doing, um, he's just doing Autumn Sweater in that, isn't he? So it seems like, you know, the Yola Tango sound just became really popular as, you know, a band that was always, they were all kind of, always kind of the musicians, musicians, I guess. Um, but this is where it's, it's just sort of like they, they really just, they just hit on all cylinders in such a way that nobody could ignore them. And, and their fellow musicians really seem to pick up on that. Um, well, uh, this, to me, this is where it all starts to go wrong. Um, <laughs> where I, I have this theory that, um, Every band that does a double album is because they realize that they cannot improve in quality, so they get they try to confuse their audience by throwing quantity at them as a way of confusing the issue. And it usually means the death knell. It usually is a sign that it's the end. I mean, if you look at Electric Ladyland, you look at the White Album, you look at uh, Blonde on Blonde, you look at... Um, <laughs> You know, there's a whole. You look at a daydream, daydream nation. You a band approaches a certain pinnacle, and then they realize we are not going to be able to actually make better quality than what we we've built up to the point where we can't improve our quality. The only last little trick card we can pull out here before we start to tumble down is quantity. While we're still at peak quality, let's do a double album just so that we still have a little trick to impress people with quantity. But that's your first sign that they couldn't make a record better than Electropura. <laughs> the only thing that they could do was like, let's have a sprawling record so that nobody really notices that we're not making a better record than Electropura. That's fine. It's still a <laughs> devastatingly good record. And I remember clearly, uh, I think it was April 97 when I saw them at the Knitting Factory and they were playing Autumn Sweater and everybody in the audience was hearing it live for the first time. And it was like, Oh my God, their next record is going to be, because this is like they're touring. Electro Pure is the most recent release. I Can Hear the Heart is still a few months away from being released, but we're hearing these songs live for the first time and they're just devastatingly awesome. They're like even more, you're like, this band was the greatest band in the world and now they're like even better. But then when the album finally came out, it was a little bit of a letdown. It was, okay, first you put it on, you have a little overture and then there's Moby Octopad and you're like, this is amazing. This is totally different totally mind-blowing what is this i love it to death right but by the time you're done with this record it has a number of mushy gushy spots you know you can always play that game like well how would you make the white album into a single what songs would you drop and what you know how would you make london calling into a single album you know i'm not going to play that game with this record but i will say that there's pound for pound the amount of this record that i think is awesome versus the amount that's merely like whatever like what you know little honda it's like you know it's okay even yeah, sugar one, cube yeah, is sort one. sugar cube is sort of like we need to write a perfect indie rock anthem go but it's sort of like <laughs> it just seems a little contrived to me it's like here is us making our hit song 
But that doesn't mean that it's actually a hit. It's like, here's us acting like we're making a hit. You know, I like it. I, I mean, I love this record. Um, Yellow Tango is one of my favorite bands, and I'll, you know, just within them being the greatest band of all time, I'm going to have my little criticisms here and there and my little annoyance criticisms. Um, and I, yeah, I think this album also follows a trend that a lot of great bands were, a, lot, a pattern that a lot of bands were falling into in this time. 97, 98, it's the end of Stereo Lab as a rock band. It's the end of um, Acetone, another indie rock band of that era. I really love their early stuff. Everybody starts getting jazzy and loungy. Loungy and jazzy became like the thing. You listen to every Stereo Lab album up to 1997, and they are a slamming, can, Velvet Underground, drone, you know, noisy Yola Tango vibe. And then you get 97 and after, and everybody wants to just do loungy stuff with different time signatures and jazzy. And I'm like, I like rock and roll, man. Keep playing rock and roll. <laughs> Jesse, Jesse, sorry, just before we come to you, I just want to point out to the regular listeners that um, in the last episode, uh, I received looks of stunned dis- disbelief with my opinions on David Bowie's Black Star. Those looks of disbelief were nothing compared to the look on your face when Jeffrey expressed his opinion on this record. Jesse, your right of response, please. <laughs> yeah, well, sure, man. Um, you know, I love the sprawl of this record. I love the atmospherics. You know, this is you know, this is the period that I was falling in love with the band. And the thing that actually made me fall in love with the band, and I love the rock songs. I love everything that I, you know, went back and discovered. But the specific moment that I fell in love with the other thing, I was hearing Green Arrow for the first time uh, in in the middle middle of, in the middle of a desert. <laughs> I was driving cross country with a friend of mine and he, he I'm not going to retell the whole story, but just this this the sense of utter space that they were able to create. Um, with that song, but just in general, that is so far beyond rock band to me. And I guess that was, and I love them as a rock band, but kind of the place that I came at them from was like, here's this band that's like, you know, they do all of these different things. And it, it you know, I, I, I hate, I don't like calling them like a psychedelic band because that's not what they are, but there's such a kaleidoscopic thing about the, the just the, the the breath that they have and to me that this period is kind of when that begins where there's you know and it's and i i guess i i like you know and i'm not uh, yeah i like the sprawl i guess is what i'm saying <laughs> and i know um, it was a yeah. weird one for me because this was the first time i heard anything by them on the radio really uh, i spent a couple of years late 90s living in california uh working in a video shop and little honda was constantly on um, Santa Barbara, Montecito, Modern Rock, whatever the, the four letters are that you have in uh, American radio stations. And I didn't know who it was. I just, that was a song that came with me. And then several years later, I realized who it was. I went, oh, that's Yoda Tango. Oh, that's what Yoda Tango sound like. And then I rediscovered it this week in the middle of this double jazz album. Um, I went, oh, this seems out of place. Yeah, it always, a little bit. it always struck me as out of place too. And they did release it. The little Honda EP came out um, and got some college radio play um, in 98, right? When you were uh, living out yeah. there in California. Um, but yeah, th- that one that one is fine. I, I would probably say it's my least favorite song on uh, on an album that's otherwise, for my money, pretty impactful. But an amazing live jam. <laughs> in incre- like that's, you know, that's, oh, that's, the, that's, that's where they, yeah, they, yeah. They, they pull the noise floor out and just, just go. 
Yeah. Um, I think this is this is probably a perfect point to wrap up the first part. Um, we've had some shocking revelations <laughs> that that some people's favorite album is a bit baggy <laughs> in parts. Um, <laughs> but I think we've covered things rather nicely, and we've, we're leaving. We're stopping the first part at a good point. Uh, Yoda Tango have developed into Yoda Tango have developed into something, and where they go from here is going to be interesting as we go into the noughties. Uh, and beyond um we will see everybody back for the the the, the, the next episode i guess um ben thank you very much for all your input and all your work uh jeffrey great to have you on the first one see you next time jesse and the look <laughs> on your face when, when that was revealed will be stuck in my head for weeks and nick um i see you all next time and you, listener, I uh, hope you're still with us. Uh, we've got some great stuff coming up in the next episode. And see you then. Bye. That was really something. And we're only halfway. Thank you once again to our curator, the linguist and language commentator, Ben Zimmer, and our two extraordinary guests, Jesse Jarnow, author of Big Day Coming, Yola Tango and the Rise of Indie Rock, I can assure you it's well worth a read, and Jeffrey Lewis, singer, songwriter and comic book artist, who has so many great records, we'll probably do a featured episode on him one day. Check him out if you don't know his work. Thanks also to Jonathan Fisher for the theme music and my convivial co-host Ewan. I'm Nick Hilditch, with nothing to say, and you in your autumn sweater.